Our scripture for today comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 20. And it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Amen. Thank you guys so much for joining us. It's uh, good to gather together as a church family this week and every week and celebrate all that God is doing. But especially this Sunday, before we get into God's Word, I just want to wish all the moms with us a happy Mother's Day. Uh, if you didn't know it was Mother's Day, uh, you now have a reminder. Uh, we're so thankful for you, so thankful for all that you're doing and have done to share the love of Jesus with the next generation, ensuring that they would follow in our footsteps as we follow after him. Want to celebrate moms today. At the same time, I was thinking about this week, and just as a church family, as we think about Mother's Day, today is a day of tremendous celebration, celebrating all the moms. At the same time, it's, it's a complex day. Sometimes it's difficult for people who have recently lost a mom, for those who are longing to be a mom, for those who have estranged relationships with their mom. I, I know we have all of those stories represented in this church, and I know that it's sometimes hard to celebrate at the same time in the back of our mind is mourning. As I was praying through that this week in the context of our church family, the Holy Spirit just brought Romans chapter 12. I think it's verse 15 to mind that says, as a church, the people of God, we rejoice with those who rejoice, and we mourn with those who mourn. And he paints this picture as, as the people of God, we can rejoice with those who rejoice almost simultaneously at the same time, mourning with those who mourn. So whether you are coming to church today with Mother's Day, it's a tremendous celebration. We're thankful that you're here. You could have been brunching with the other half of our church on Mother's Day. Uh, so we're thankful you're here to start your week in worship. If you're coming with a heavy heart today for uh, this day, we are also thankful you're here. So I'd love to pray for us and we'll dive right into God's word. Father, we are so thankful for the goodness and grace of God that allows us to gather together as your people. We take this uh, privilege very seriously that we have the freedom and the responsibility to come together as the people of God to make much of God. Father, we pray that as we lift you up, you will make yourself known to us. Uh, as we come today, Father, I pray that you would help us to set aside all the worries and distractions and fears, sorrows of life, to focus on what your Holy Spirit has to say through your holy word. That we 
reach the end of this study through the Gospel of Luke, that we would be able to follow along with you as we follow along in your stories. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. If you have a Bible with you, please go ahead and grab that turn there. If you don't bring a Bible, we always have them available for you on the way, on the way into the worship space. If you don't own a Bible, one of those blue softcover Bibles, please feel free to take that home with you. If you're taking a Bible home with you, just open it up. Make sure it's not someone else's Bible. But if it's one of our Bibles, you're welcome to take it home. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. We've been in a study for some time that's taking us all the way through the story of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke with one goal, that as a church family, as we follow along, the story of Jesus would be inspired, encouraged, and instructed to follow Jesus with our life. We have seen Jesus perform some incredible miracles, things that just allow us to stand in awe of him. We've read his teaching that transformed the world, but today's text is a special text. It's recorded in different ways in all four Gospels. It is a text that if we will lean in and listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say, and if we will take it home and do what it says, it will change the way we live life this week as we sit at the Lord's feet in the Lord's Supper. So Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 7, it says this. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so in the very first verse of today's text, Luke sets the stage for us. He tells us what's taking place. He gives us the setting. It is the day of unleavened bread. The Passover feast is about to get underway. It is the day that uh, the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And even more than that, today in this text, it takes place, this text takes place on a Thursday. Jesus is crucified on a what day? On a Friday. So this is the day before Jesus was arrested, tried, and crucified. And I know we've been in this study for so long, some of you thought we would never get here, never get to the end of Jesus' life. And you think in the back of your mind, like maybe today's the last day in the Gospel of Luke, but with Jesus, the end of the story is not the end of the story, right? We gave that away on Easter Sunday. So a few more weeks, the first week of June, we're going to move on to a really fun summer series. We've got some really exciting things coming up to go with that. But Jesus, in the final moments of his life, we see some of the things that are most important to Jesus. If it was the final moments of your life, if you had the privilege, and I think it really is a privilege to know that you are about to draw your last breath, what would you say? Jesus is spending the final time with his disciples. They don't know, but he knows what's, about, what's just to take place around the corner. And he gathers his disciples together in the upper room. They're celebrating the Passover feast. And Jesus begins to point, to them, point them to a tradition that will be carried on through all of church history to remind them of the sacrifice of Jesus. The Day of Unleavened Bread is a special day for the people of Israel. It's the day the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. It's an ancient tradition, even in their day. Because we think of Jesus' day as the ancient days, but even generations, for generations before Jesus' day, they had been celebrating the Passover. It goes all the way back to when the nation of Israel was first formed, and they were enslaved in the, in the nation of Egypt. And God wanted to bring his people out. But Pharaoh, if you've read the story in Exodus, the first few chapters of Exodus, Pharaoh, the, the most powerful man in the world at that time, he's got a stubborn heart. He's not going to let God's people go. They're free labor. They're enslaved to him. And so God sends a series of plagues on Pharaoh. And Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. And he's digging in and he's opposed himself to God. And finally, the tenth and final plague is going to be the slaughter of the firstborn son of the sons of Egypt. And God makes provision for his people who are living among the people of Egypt. That if they would take a, 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 a perfect lamb, one year old, as Paul said in the communion meditation, and shed its blood, spill its blood, and then take that blood and put it on the doorframe of their house, God's judgment would pass over his people as it passed through the land and fell on the people of Egypt. And so they did that, and God spared the firstborn sons of the, of the people 
of Israel. And every generation celebrated the Passover feast year after year to remember God's goodness and his grace and his provision as he redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt. So every year, the people of Israel, this was the day that they set aside to remember God's provision on their behalf. The families would gather the, the lamb. They'd gather the family together and take a lamb and sacrifice, and they'd roast the lamb and, lamb, and they'd have this long, prolonged feast, this dinner where everything was laid out to remind them of the goodness and the grace and the provision of God. Uh, it could only be celebrated for residents of Judea in Jerusalem, so historians estimate that the Jews flooded the capital city of Jerusalem at that time. The population of the, the capital city likely swelled in excess of one million people. And so that's what's taking place as Luke starts the story, the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested, on the, uh, crucified on the very next day. The population is, is swelling of the city. And so what does Jesus do? So, so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go prepare the Passover for us so that we can eat it. In order to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, Jesus couldn't go make preparations because the religious leaders were ready to kill Jesus. Judas had already agreed to betray Jesus. As soon as the religious leaders saw Jesus, they were going to arrest him. And so Jesus could not go make provision. So what did he do? He sent his best friends, his right-hand guys, Peter and John, ahead to go make provisions. And what a privilege to go where God is sending you. One of the things I read in many of the different commentaries is they said normally the preparations for the Passover would be left to the women. But Peter and John were tasked with a very important assignment. What a privilege it would be to be part of what God is doing. I don't think they had any concept for what was about to take place. So they knew they were going to take the Passover feast just like they'd done every year before, but I don't think they had any concept of gravity of the story that was about to be unfolding in their midst. But they went where God, where Jesus sent them. Verse 9 says, They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher, says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, fully furnished. Prepare the meal there. And they went. I love this final line. It says, And they went, and they found it, just as Jesus told them. And they prepared the Passover. It says, They went, and they found it, just as Jesus told them, and they prepared the Passover. So we assume that Jesus had made provisions for the people. He had made some arrangements. Jesus has been spending his days in Jerusalem this final week of his life, but nights he was withdrawing to Bethany where it was safer, maybe staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus in their home. And so while Jesus was in the capital city of Jerusalem, he made preparations for the place for his people, for him to have the Passover with his people, with his disciples. And, and they didn't know. I don't think they had any idea what was about to take place. In fact, we're pretty certain they didn't because they asked him, Lord, where are we going to make preparations? You're sending us ahead. We're willing to go and make preparations, but tell us, where are we going to set it up? Where are we going to find a place? They couldn't just move about freely because of the tension surrounding Jesus. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, how often do we find ourselves like Peter and John where we have no idea what Jesus has put in place, what Jesus has prepared for us? One of the things I've told you has been on my heart is just how do we stand in all of God as his people and how do, we, how do we want what God wants? I don't think Peter and John had any idea what was about to take place. They had no idea what Jesus put in place, but they followed him and he, and he uh, had promises prepared before them. Now, Jesus is talking about the Passover meal with his disciples, but the same thing could be true of us. When we think about our life and our family and our relationships and our career path and our finances and every facet of life, so often we have no idea 
what Jesus has prepared just beyond our ability to comprehend. But if we would lean in and hear what he says and follow the direction that he's taking us, he's always working things together for our good and his glory. That doesn't mean it's easy, right? Many of us know it's not easy to follow Jesus, but it is always for our good and his glory. So Peter and John, they go and they find the provision just as Jesus had told them. Again, of course, Jesus made preparations. They found it ready to go. And so they prepared the Passover. What does it mean that Peter and John prepared the Passover? They'd had this meal many times. It may have been the first time they were responsible for preparing it. It wasn't just that they set the table. It was also that they, when they sacrificed the lamb, they would have gone to the temple and they would have gone through the ceremonial process. They wouldn't have just, would not have just prepared the room. They would have prepared the lamb. They would have seen it slaughtered. They would have brought it back. They would have prepared the meal. So when the disciples came with Jesus, they'd be ready to partake. Keep that in the back of your mind as we keep going. Verse 14 says, And when the hour came, Jesus reclined in his apostles with him. There's so much in these, these verses. We could spend so much time on this. And when the hour came, when the hour came, the, everything is taking place according to God's perfect plan. And here's the, the thing that I find so fascinating about God. These are one of those things that as I read the text, I just stand in awe of God, that everything is taking place according to God's perfect plan. But it's not just God's plan for the day. It's not like Jesus woke up and decided, today I'd like to partake of the Passover feast with my disciples, and so I'm going to lay out a plan. Most days when I wake up, I try to think through what I want to do for that day. I don't often think too much further beyond it, which drives Carissa nuts. But the truth is, like, even if I make a plan in the start of the day, very rarely does everything go according to my plan throughout the day. Is that ever your experience? Like, you wake up in the morning, and before the day starts, it feels like you have the perfect plan, but by the time you get halfway through the day, the plan is out the window. Just yesterday, I tried, uh, it was today's Mother's Day, we pretty busy on Sunday mornings, and so we were going to celebrate Carissa on, on Saturday. We were going to, Brighton and I were going to prepare her Mother's Day. We got her favorite food and uh, made all the preparations. I shopped the day before. I had everything ready in the refrigerator and had a really exciting day. And next thing I know, I was ready. I was thinking, like, Brighton and I, my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, she was going to help me make dinner for her mom's Mother's Day. But not, Halfway through the day, I realized that my plan to have dinner on the table for her at 6 o'clock was not going to happen. In fact, it was like 8.30, almost 9 o'clock when dinner was served. And there's nothing more special than serving Mother's Day at 9 o'clock with the two-and-a-half-year-old baby ready to go to bed, right? And I was just thinking about it. Like, I stand in awe of God because his plan was a plan that he put in place thousands of years before this. Like in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, in the Proto-Euangelion, where God first proclaimed the gospel that the Satan would come, but Jesus would triumph over him, the offspring of the woman would ultimately triumph over him. He put a plan in place to redeem his people, to restore a relationship, and everything from the beginning was going according to plan. It's about to culminate here as Jesus is ready to go to the cross, but it says, when the hour came, when the time was right, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Now, here's the other thing we pull out of this verse. The plan is going according to God, going perfectly according to God's plan. Jesus is about to be, spend time with his disciples, be betrayed by Judas, be arrested, be tried, be crucified, be thrown into a tomb, and a few days later raised from the dead. But Jesus goes in first and partakes of the Passover meal. When they go in, it says Jesus reclined at the table with his disciples. Now, here's something we have to Think about, have you ever seen the picture, Leonardo da Vinci's picture of Jesus at the final, the Passover feast? And it's Jesus in the middle and his disciples, six on one side and six on the other. I haven't really paid that close attention. I'm not, not sure if Judas is even in the picture. But nonetheless, here's what we know for certain. When Jesus reclined at the table, Jesus and his disciples were not same side sitters. 
Like the picture that Da Vinci drew, like where everybody's sitting facing nothing, like that's not how it went. They were reclined in a U-shape, uh, U-shape or even a circle, but like Jesus and his disciples, they weren't same-side sitters. I mean, you know a same-side sitter. Like, you ever go out and you see a couple, if you are this couple, I'm sorry, but it drives me nuts. When you go out and you see a couple and they're sitting on the same side of the booth, and you're, like, thinking that someone's going to show up and sit across from them. Maybe it's like a double date, and then halfway through dinner, you realize it's just a date, and they love each other so much that they can't sit across the table from each other. So, I mean, I think it's awkward enough for them, but if you sit across from same-side sitters, it feels kind of like you're on their date. Right? Have you ever been in that situation? And I get super distracted. Like not too long ago, we were at a booth, and the booth behind us, same side sitters. So the whole meal, I'm trying to be on a date with my wife, and and Chris is like, "What are you looking at?" I was like, I feel like I'm on a date with this couple here because I hear everything they're saying. It drives me nuts. But Jesus and his disciples were reclining at the table. They were in a U shape. They're probably even in a, a full circle. And here's the thing: so they could talk to one another. But Jesus would have been in the place of honor. So every everyone's focus and attention would have been on Jesus. They weren't just like staring out into space. It wasn't this picture-perfect moment for someone to paint a few hundred years, a few thousand years later, a couple, somewhere in between 1400s, whatever that would be, 1400 years later. They were circled around and they were focused on Jesus. And they were hanging on every word, listening to what Jesus says. He presided over the Passover feast. And so it should be as we gather together as a church. Now, we don't just... We don't take communion by ourselves, staring off into the distance. We take communion as a church family. But the focus is always on Jesus. Communion is meant to be celebrated with the church, and Jesus is at the center of our communion celebration. Jesus and his disciples, they recline at the table. It says, Jesus said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, before I suffer, before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And at this point, the disciples, I know they've been with Jesus for three years. Jesus has told them plainly what's about to take place. But we know, because we've read ahead, that they still don't get it. So I don't think Jesus' disciples have any idea what he's saying. He think, they think that the next glass of wine that he pours, he's going to be king of Israel. The kingdom of God is going to be here. But then Jesus goes on. He says, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So think about what it would have been like to be those disciples. I know you've read this text. You've heard this text. You've grown up in church that maybe have applied this passage in different ways, but we're familiar with the story. But the disciples, they're, they're partaking the Passover, the feast. They put all their hope and their trust in Jesus, and he is now their spiritual father. But they're thinking back to the times where they have partaken of the Passover feast with their father or their grandfather and the great-grandfather, and they've been in Jesus' place, and they're reading the script, the, the familiar ceremonial motions, going through the ceremonial motions of the meal where they have the bread and they have the lamb and they have the bitter herbs and everything is symbolic. The four cups are symbolic and the, the herbs are symbolic and the unleavened bread is symbolic. And as they partake of the meal in this liturgical order, they're rehashing and remembering uh, the, the exodus from Egypt. And they're going through this and Jesus is leading his disciples through it. And somewhere in the course of the meal, he took the bread and he goes off script. And he breaks the bread. And I almost wonder if the disciples were kind of on autopilot. They've done this every year for their entire life. But Jesus breaks the bread. He gave thanks. He gave thanks. He broke. He said, this is my body. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And I almost wonder if at that time everyone's reclining at the table and they look up and like, Jesus, you're off script. Like, that's, that's not how the story goes. We're supposed to be reciting the Psalms. And, and you're, you're saying this is about you? This would have been 
almost impossible for a first century Jew to wrap their minds around, but Jesus is saying exactly that. This is about me. This ancient feast, this tradition that has been passed on from generation to generation was always pointing to me, and it's going to find its full fulfillment in me, that my body is going to be given for you. My body, as this bread is broken, my body will also be broken for you. It says, and likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. We say this every week as we partake of the communion meal together. But for the disciples, this was mind-blowing. Like, this wasn't something, they weren't looking forward to it. They weren't expecting it. They had been living under the old covenant. Their entire framework, their expectations, their thought about God and religion were all framed by the old covenant where sacrifices were offered year after year to take away the sins of the people. But it was kind of like taking a shower. It cleansed them for a moment, but they would need it again. So every year, the day of atonement, they would gather the nation together and confess their sins. And they would take the, 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 the ram, the scapegoat, and send it out. And they would literally watch their sin, walk out into the desert and die. And then the priest would take a perfect lamb and he would shed its blood. He would go into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood across the, ten, the tablets of the Ten Commandments to demonstrate uh, the, the cleansing for the, the nation breaking the Ten Commandments and sinning against God. They lived on this old covenant and Jesus says this, this time, the Passover feast is being taken. This, this cup represents my blood, which represents a new covenant, a new commitment from God to his people which is kind of confusing today, but it was especially confusing for them. And we know that even after Jesus had the Passover feast with his disciples and he established the Lord's Supper to be in place for all time so the church could look and remember the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, the church still struggled to wrap their mind around. And we know that because so many of the epistles, so many of the letters that the Apostle Paul and Peter and others wrote back to the church to encourage them, to equip them in their faith, they were addressing these very things. What is communion? What is the Lord's Supper? 1 Corinthians chapter 11 points to the Lord's Supper. All throughout, we see uh, describe the Lord's Supper. But I don't know if there's any better place to see what is taking place in this moment than the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bible with you, turn me to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to scan a few texts in Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10. Not the whole thing, I promise, but I just want you to follow along as I read what the writer of Hebrews writes to the church so that they could understand what Jesus is saying when he says, my blood is what's being poured out. To, to establish a new covenant, all right? Verse 6, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 says this. It says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is so much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since he is in, it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So God established a covenant with his people, right? And he solidified it when he gave them the Ten Commandments and he gave them this perfect law. If you will just live up to God's holy standard, you'll have a right relationship with God. You will be a righteous people. If you can follow those laws perfectly, and no one ever has followed that law perfectly. And so that covenant fell short. No one could live up to it. Verse 8, for he finds fault with them for what he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant, a new commitment with my people, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And he's talking now about the new covenant, the New Testament. In Christ, he says, 
uh, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer was it going to be, no longer was God's covenant relationship with his people going to be dependent on external law that God provides law for his people as as a guide, a guide for how to follow and honor him. But God was going to go to work transforming people from the inside out. It was no longer going to be an external cleansing. It was going to be an internal cleansing. The law was on their heart. They would be his people. Verse 11, And they shall not teach uh, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. The greatest privilege of the new covenant is that we know Jesus that God gives us access to the Holy of Holies through the blood of Jesus. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In order to know know God through Jesus, he had to forgive our sins. And in the new covenant, God's blood forgives our sins. I know we know this, but hear how the writer of Hebrews goes on and he talks about what was accomplished the blood of Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. I mean, what a relief. Like, what a relief that every year we don't have to come and bring sacrifices, but we know that Jesus accomplished for us as his blood was shed for us. He secured an eternal redemption. He says, For if the blood of, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, meaning if these sacrifices that mark the old covenant purify you for a time, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God, making it possible for us to live a life that pleases and honors God. Skip down to verse 22. It says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. From the, from the garden. You remember in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and the God provided them the, the very first God, foreshadowing of the gospel, the very first prophecy? Before God expelled them from the garden, before they had to live with the consequences of their sin, he took animals and he killed them. He shed blood so they could cover their sin and shame. From the very beginning, the covering of sin has always required the shedding of blood. Verse 21, in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not only into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own. For then he would not have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to, to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. And the writer of Hebrews is is elaborating on what Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room that in this new covenant, the shedding of blood would no longer be the Passover lamb sacrificed for us. It would instead be the shedding of Jesus' blood for everyone who puts their faith in him. So when the inevitable happens and our time comes, or God comes back in judgment, no longer would he come to deal with, 
with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him, so that we can know that we are saved. And finally, a few verses in chapter 10, starting in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's the church. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them, that after those days, declares Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. I want to take you straight to the text. I mean, we could break that down and spend a significant amount of time trying to unpack what God is saying in those first few chapters of Hebrews. But what the, the gist of it is that Jesus, he elaborates on this covenant that God institutes with his disciples in the Last Supper, the covenant that we remember week in and week out as we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that the, 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 the juice represents his blood poured out for anyone and everyone who would put their faith in him. That no longer would we have to try to earn our way back to God or establish our own righteousness if there was any effort of doing so. But we could put our faith in Jesus and his righteousness would be given for us. And that is so significant. And that is why Jesus set up the Passover feast, the Lord's Supper, as this perfect reminder of what he accomplished on our behalf. Now, we do this all the time. At church, we do the Lord's Supper every week as we gather together. But as a people, we're always setting aside special days to remember special things. As a nation, we have national holidays to remember pivotal moments in our nation's history. As families, we set aside days to remember the important days. As individuals, we set aside birthdays and anniversaries. Today is Mother's Day. It's a day we set aside to remember and celebrate the influence and the impact our mothers have had on us. I was curious about it. Like, where did Mother's Day start? I assumed, and wrongly, I assumed that Hallmark started Mother's Day. I just figured it was a ploy to sell more cars. And so I looked it up this week, and I found there's a few different ideas of where it started. But the preponderance of evidence seems to point to a lady named Anna Jarvis of Philadelphia, whose mother had done philanthropic work to promote friendship and health. And on May 12, 1907, she held a memorial service to remember her late mother's life and the impact she had made on the people she had invested in at her church in Grafton, West Virginia. Within five years, the idea caught on. Virtually every state was observing that day as Mother's Day. And in 1914, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson made Mother's Day a national holiday, which is cool, right? That's how most holidays start. A day set aside, someone sets it aside, everyone thinks it's a good idea. But what really struck me was how the story continued. It said, over time, Mother's Day, the day was expanded to include others, not just mothers, but grandmothers and aunts and uh, not uncles. I don't know why I said that, aunts. I mean, anyway, who played mothering roles? What had originally primarily been a day to honor became associated with simply sending of cards and the giving of gifts. However, and in protest against its commercialization, Jarvis, who instituted Mother's Day, spent the last years of her life trying to abolish the holiday she had brought into being. And she kept saying, it just kind of became something we do. It lost its significance. It lost its meaning. She started this day to honor the influence of her mom, who changed not only her life, but the lives of so many people. But over time, it just became an opportunity to buy more cards and give more gifts and just kind of honor your mom in passing. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking, if we're not careful, we do the exact same thing with communion. And I've grown up in church. I've spent 
every Sunday for as long as I can remember since I put my faith in Jesus partaking of the Lord's Supper. And it's this little bit of juice and this little bit of bread. And if we're not careful, much like has been done with holidays like Mother's Day, we can lose the significance of what it was put in place to signify and remember. And for that reason, I think we often forget uh, we often, we often forget the significance of it. One final verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 through 19. I think this is so impactful because Peter was one of the two sent to prepare the Passover feast. As he's writing a letter to the church to recall the work that God had accomplished on his behalf, surely he was thinking about that final meal with Jesus before he was nailed to the cross. And to the church, scattered abroad, he writes this. He says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, According to each, one de- each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. We read these so often. I read these sometimes like they're memory verses passed down to us from in vacation Bible school. But this was Peter. And he was there the day Jesus broke the bread with his disciples in the upper room. He had been there to prepare the meal. He had not only set the table, he had sacrificed the lamb. He had brought it back. He had roasted. He put everything in place so that Jesus had come with his disciples and institute the Lord's Supper. And he was there probably on Jesus' right or on Jesus' left in this table, reclining at the table. And Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke. He said, this is my body. This is given for you. No longer are you going to look back on what God had done to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt, you're going to now look at this feast as a reminder of what I have done on your behalf, what I am about to do when I'm nailed to the cross. He was there when Jesus passed the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. And as Peter reflects on that moment that changed the trajectory of his life, he says, if you've been bought not with silver or gold, meaning if you have not earned your own righteousness by your efforts, but if your life has been bought, if your salvation has been secured, if your righteousness has been bestowed upon you, imputed upon you, because of the blood of Christ shed for you, man, that should change the way you live life. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Man, as we gather together to remember the Lord's Supper week in and week out, as we reflect on the sacrifice of Christ, it should change the way we lead our life. When we take communion, we are saying, we're proclaiming, that we trust Jesus as our Passover lamb to take away not just the sin of the world, but to take away our sin. It reorients our hearts. It reprioritizes our affections. A pastor in Houston named Jeff Metters writes this about communion. He says, communion is more than a mental acknowledgement, some kind of cognitive realignment to Jesus. At the Lord's table, we are refreshed, we are nourished, we are strengthened, and we are encouraged in the presence of King Jesus. Paul tells us the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Communion is community with Christ. Koinonia, the Greek word with the Lord, happens at the Lord's table, which makes sense. He invited us to his table. Of course he is there. And when we draw near to God, he promises to draw near to us. And the nearness of God is for our good. I love that quote. Because so much more takes place in this short but symbolic moment than just a quick remembrance. It is fellowship with God. It is like the disciples gathered around that table where they were taking it in community, but they were focused solely on Jesus. So I was thinking about it this week. I was like, man, I really want to illustrate this for our church. 
I really want to illustrate this for our church because I know, because I've been there, that more takes place in communion, just a quick remembrance, just a quick mental realignment. And I was thinking about those guys on the road to Emmaus, right after Jesus rose from the dead, the guys we talked about on Easter Sunday, they were traveling with Jesus, and they didn't recognize Jesus, but they spent time with him, they listened to him teach, they uh, talked to him about the things of God, the things that were taking place, Jesus expounded on the scriptures for them, but it wasn't until they made it to where they were going, and Jesus took bread and broke it. In that moment where Jesus broke bread, they recognized Jesus. And so I sent a text to as many of my friends who are in ministry as I could think of, and I said, I need a story because I really want to illustrate this for our church. Like, I want a really cool story about someone realizing who Jesus was for the first time when they took communion. I was thinking, like, they'd come back with, like, Winston Churchill or Tim Tebow or someone whose life was changed, this, like, recognizable name. I didn't get any of those stories. Maybe those stories exist or true, but almost every person I texted sent me back a text with a story of someone who recognized Jesus for the first time in their context. Hear what Brett, who shared with us not too long ago, said about new life. He says, when new life was young, a man came with his wife to a church for three years. He had a Jehovah Witness background, and she was Catholic. Uh, he considered himself an agnostic at the time, not really believing in God, but he wanted a place to serve, so we let him serve communion. I think that's funny. Eventually, he surrendered and was baptized. Later, he said, Brett, do you know what pushed me over the top? Brett said, I have no idea. He says, one day I was serving communion just like I'd done every Sunday for the, first, for the first three years I was at New Life. But as I served communion, as I watched the emblems going down the road and the people partaking, all of a sudden in that moment it clicked. Jesus died for me. Another friend uh, served at Real Life for many years. He says, I've got a good story. I remember a family that I baptized. We had communion at the end of service. They were baptized in the middle of service. I got the privilege to see them take communion for the very first time. The emotion they had during that time was incredible. It made me realize that we need to remember the feeling of the first time we enter into his presence during communion. And so, like, I was a little disappointed at first, honestly. It's like, I really want the story about some, like, Billy Graham's first communion. Like, and then Billy Graham went on to change the world. But as the stories flooded in, I could read you six or seven more. I just, I was pretty humbled because that experience isn't reserved for the quote-unquote religious elite. It's for everyone who comes to the Lord's table. Peter and John prepped the Passover feast. Jesus brought the rest of the disciples, guys who had really no idea what was going on. But as they took communion, Jesus began to explain to them that this matters for you. It's an invitation to a table extended to everyone who would come and partake. There's a few takeaways from it. First and foremost, if you've never put your faith in Jesus and communion is missing its meaning for you, if you've never accepted that the blood of Jesus shed on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins, man, we always want to have those conversations with you. But I think many of us come to the table week in and week out. I know I've been guilty of it. Communion comes a few minutes before I stand up to preach. I'm guilty of sitting there rehearsing my sermon, thinking about the jokes I should say and the jokes I shouldn't say, and never does that go right. But nonetheless, like, it's the most powerful moment of our week because it reorients our hearts and our affections on Jesus. It reminds us that his blood was shed for us. It invites us to live a life in reverent fear of God because our life is not our own. It was bought at a price. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover lamb so that when the judgment of God is poured out, he passes over those who are called his people. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and grace. 
Lord, we have the privilege as your people, as a church, to take an ancient faith into the modern context. And for that, we're thankful for these traditions that have been passed on from generation to generation. Traditions that remind us of the work you accomplished on our behalf. Traditions that remind us that as we sit at your feet, as we partake of this meal, the small piece of bread and the, the juice that are so small in size are eternal insignificant. Father, that it would change the trajectory of our lives. Father, that it has changed the trajectory of those who we love who have gone before us. That they are enjoying what we long for, communion with you. The messianic banquet that we long for. God, so much takes place in this moment. We look back on what you accomplished for us. We look at our lives in the moment, how we're doing, walking with you. But Father, at the same time, we look forward. We look forward to being united with believers from thousands of years of history to celebrate your work on our behalf. Father, for that reason, I pray that as we sing these final two songs, we would reflect back on that meal we partook in just a few moments ago and remember the sacrifice you made on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.